wife doesn't know this, but I almost bought um, two volumes on eBay the other day, and I missed it. But they had the uh, 1780 two-volume edition of Ann Steele's works. $200, which is a lot of money. But you know, like, you spend that much on a college textbook that you use for a semester and then give away. So I should have done it, but I didn't. Dang it. Um, well, glad to be here. My name's Kevin, and we're going to talk about Ann Steele. Do you all know anything about Ann Steele? A little bit? Anything? No? Okay. Well, good. You've come to the right place. Uh, Ann Steele, you know, Mike had mentioned, I don't know if you were in the services, um, I've been a pastor of college students since 1995 and have been working, sort of coming out of that work at Belmont University in Nashville, which the school is about half musicians. Through that work, um, had gotten involved in setting old hymns to new music with this thing we call Indelible Grace, right? Made, I think, seven records now and even made a documentary film this last year. Um, so it's been really fun to see that kind of take off and other people pick up on that idea. In a lot of ways, Ann Steele was the impetus behind a lot of that. Um, I found this book. I, lo I love this book. I remember buying it in a used bookstore because I just thought, how cool that somebody loved this book so much that when it wore out, they put this leather cover to like hold it together. This book is um, called this, A Selection of Hymns from the Best Authors intended to be an appendix to Dr. Watts' Psalms and Hymns by John Rippon, a new edition with a supplement, including the improvements in the 14th London edition, 1807. So this is an 1807 book by Rippon. You probably don't know of John Rippon, but he's a very important figure in the introduction of hymns into English-speaking churches. Um, the Baptists were kind of at the forefront of that movement in the 1700s. Um, you guys know some about Isaac Watts, right? Because y'all have done two albums, Isaac Watts. Um, Isaac Watts lived near Ann Steele, um, about 15 miles away, and was older than her. So he kind of paves the way. There's a few other, it's, it's kind of complicated, but in general, Isaac Watts is the guy who brings this revolution to English-speaking churches. Um, after the Reformation, I'll give you this quick little background. The Reformation was not only a recovery of the gospel that in a lot of ways had been lost by the church, it was also a recovery of singing. In the 400s, the Catholic Church at the Council of Laodicea um, decreed that laymen were no longer allowed to sing. Now, scholars and historians debate on how long it took for that to be fully enforced, but, but most everybody agrees that by 500 AD, laymen, that means people who aren't trained priests and monks and nuns and whatnot, didn't sing in church. John Huss in the 1300s, I think it's 1300s, um, is a guy who starts challenging some of the status quo of the Catholic Church in his day. One of the things that he pushes for is for, the, for people, lay people, who aren't priests and church, you know, pastors and whatnot, he wants them to be able to commune, take the Lord's Supper, both the bread and the wine which people hadn't, weren't being allowed to do. But he also reintroduces singing of hymns. So what you need to understand is that Christians in Europe weren't singing congregationally for a thousand years. Now, at the time of the Reformation, John Huss, like kind of on the eve of the Reformation, reintroduces hymn singing. He's burned at the stake at the Council of Constance while singing a hymn. 
And the Council of Constance um, decrees, one of their decrees, is that if laymen are forbidden to preach, how much more are they forbidden to sing? So people have understood, even the church authorities understood, that what you sing really matters, right? Martin Luther, um, you know, puts the 95 theses on the wall, and, you know, we generally credit the Reformation breaking out with him. But one of the first things he does is he starts to write hymns. He first wrote hymns because he heard about two young boys, young youth, they were teenagers, who were martyred, burned at the stake in Brussels. And they were burned while singing a hymn, the Te Deum, which is an ancient Christian hymn. And so Martin Luther wrote his first hymn about those two boys. We don't sing it because it mentions them by name. So it's a little specific for singing in church, right? Um, And then soon after that, Luther publishes a hymnal and issues a call to German poets to help him, this is his phrase, noise the gospel abroad. Um, So he very much, and so many pastors that we think of as preachers and theologians also were very concerned with worship and the songs that we sing. Now, John Calvin who you probably heard of, um, is the reformer who really operates in the French-speaking world in Geneva, Switzerland, and then sends lots of missionaries back into France as well. He decides, and again, this I'm giving you a very rough overview to get you a little context here. He decides that um, it would be better, well, he just is concerned that if you sing bad words, it will be really bad. And so he doesn't settle on you can only sing psalms, but he pretty much settles on that. You really, to be safe, the best thing to do is sing psalms uh, and maybe some other scripture passages. Instant, interestingly, Calvin is credited with writing one hymn, right? So he wasn't a total psalms only, but pretty much that's where he lands. The English-speaking churches, like in England and Scotland, they follow Calvin's example rather than Luther. So the German Lutherans are singing hymns from the 1500s on. But the English churches are only singing psalms. Isaac Watts introduces this revolution um, and, and sort of reintroduces English hymns, okay? And it's very popular. And then there's people that come after him that we talk of as being in the school of Watts. And that's where Anne Steele falls. So it's good that you've done two albums of Isaac Watts here, and now you're ready to do Anne Steele. Because Anne Steele introduces some things into hymnody that are a little different than Isaac Watts. And when I look at the history of church song, it's interesting to see different streams that sort of all contribute. If you look at a, at a, at a hymnal, it's one of the most ecumenical books that you'll probably ever read, drawing on all kinds of traditions, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. And probably, you probably don't read very many books by those different groups. Most people don't read very widely outside of their own stream. But a good hymnal, you'll end up singing songs from people from all these different streams of Christianity that come together. Um, Anne Steele is a major important stream in the history of Christian hymnody because she writes um, as uh, she writes these laments. She writes about struggle in ways that people before here, her didn't really feel free to write. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her life and then... Um, talk about some of the things really that I think are so amazing about her hymns, sort of to help you appreciate her more, and it might uh, encourage you to dig deeper into her hymns and resonate with them. One of my things I've always been about as a pastor is trying to give these old hymnals 
to uh, singer-songwriters that I know, um, not just so that they would write new songs, but so that they would try. Because I know that if you're going to put a new tune to a hymn, as a pastor, I know that you're going to have to sit in that text. And I really want them to sit in that text. Now, they might write a, write a hymn that we'll use in church, and that would be great. But even if they don't, sitting in that text and trying to sort of absorb the emotion and the feel and even think about a way of responding musically to it is a really helpful thing to do. And for a lot of my students who are also musicians, it's hard to get them maybe to read a theology book, but I can give them a hymnal and say, start looking through this and see if something resonates with you. And if it does, then sit in it for a while. Um, and I think Cosper's been trying to do the same kind of thing with y'all, right? Um, th- it's hard to find Ann Steele, or at least it has been hard to find Ann Steele. I first discovered her, like I said, I bought this little book in a used bookstore in Atlanta. I think it was right after I'd gotten out of seminary, so maybe 95, 96, somewhere around there. And I remember kind of looking through this book, and I kept coming upon these hymns that really arrested me. And most of the hymns in this book are not credited to any particular person, right? Um, You can see, like, there's no music. These old hymnals, people would just, they would have their own hymnal, they'd bring it to church, and they would really sing most of this book to just a couple tunes. The early 1800s, most congregations didn't sing very many tunes, but that was okay because there's only a couple different meters that are represented by these old English hymns. And so you could sing this whole hymn book to a half a dozen tunes. And they would do that often. Um, but I kept coming upon ones like, I remember very vividly when I first read this, this hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And I thought, whoa, like you can say that in church? You're allowed to sing that? But here it is in a hymnal from 1807. And I was like, and, and it had just the name Steele. Didn't say Ann Steele, didn't say Mrs. Steele, it just says Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. I thought, who is this Steele person? Because that's amazing. And then a little later, I was reading through this hymnal. You can see like when I read these old hymnals, I just sort of make, put these little papers in whenever I find a, a text that really strikes me. And then when I am in the mood to write a song, I kind of go back and read them and see if they grab me again. So this one's full of these little papers, right? But the, the, another one I found was Thou Lovely Source of True Delight. And again, I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. And that's really, it seems like where my students are at, we need to sing some of these things. And so that was my beginning uh, into understanding who Ann Steele was. I started trying to figure out who is the Steele character, looking up some different resources, and eventually figured out Ann Steele was this English Baptist woman that lived in the 1700s in England and was very, very popular at one time. Her hymns were incredibly popular. They were sung all over the place, but for the most part, they dropped out of use in the 20th century. And that began me thinking about, you know, why is this? Who is she? And man, we need to sing these songs again. And there's nobody alive that remembers singing very many Ann Steele hymns. Uh, So I guess if we're going to sing Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, I better come up with a melody for it. Um, And that's what I want to encourage you to do. There's some real amazing riches in her corpus of hymns. Amazing stuff. Well, who was Ann Steele? Well, first, if I'm going to follow this outline, I, I listed some. One of the cool things is, since I started investigating Ann Steele a little bit, um, it's gotten a lot easier to figure out who she is and learn about her. Um, I, there really was very little information when I was first starting. 
Um, I eventually bought these, which these are the complete works of Ann Steele. This is like the prize of my library. I only had to pay $60 for them. Now there's a set of these on the internet that's 250 bucks. That's why I should have bought those other ones. Yeah, there it is. These are my precious Ian Steele volumes. And not only do these have all of her hymns, she also did a number of psalm translations where she set to meet her, um, about 30-some of those, and they're in here. She also has some letters, and she even has some prose writings that are all in here. But not only that, more recently, um, there's been a couple books about Ian Steele. There was, like in 1969... I think it was late, late 60s, the, some English Baptists put out this little paperback, Hymns by Ann Steele. Sometimes you can find on the internet. I know Mike has found a few and given them to people, but they're really hard to find because generally used book dealers, it's not worth their trouble to type up you know, a, a, a used paperback book and put it online. It's just not even worth their trouble. So used paperbacks that are out of print are really hard to find sometimes. But I did find this, right? And now... There's this book that just came out, A Bruised Read, The Life and Times of Anne Steele. So there's all kinds of research in this book. It's not a very good read. And it's a shame to me because Anne Steele is awesome. But he's very concerned with tracing all the genealogies of her relatives and who lived where and who moved where. And it kind of bogs you down a little bit, honestly. But there's a whole corpus of, like, papers and diaries and things from Ann Steele and her family that's in a, in a library that he used. So there's a lot of really cool information in that. And then there's this book. If you really want to explore her hymns more, this is a really cool book uh, to express the ineffable, the hymns and spirituality of Ann Steele. Um, back in 19, when was it? No, I guess it was around 2000. We got a grant from Calvin. You all have gotten one of these Calvin worship grants too. I don't know if, if you all know that. But Calvin um, Institute of Worship up in Grand Rapids funds these worship renewal projects, and they gave us one down in Nashville to produce a thing called the RUF Hymn Book, um, where a lot of these songs we've been doing in Delville Grace were able to transcribe the music and put it online. Anyway, we brought this um, hymn scholar from Vancouver, from Regent College, named Bruce Hindmarsh. He's kind of the world's expert on John Newton, the hymn writer, and he came and gave like four lectures for us at this conference. And then he, he heard, I think, our, our first CD where we did this version of Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul took it back to Vancouver, played it in one of his classes, and this lady, Cynthia Alders, I guess you say her name, was inspired to do her PhD about Aunt Steele and her hymns. And this is a great, this is awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome. So um, I think it's really expensive now too, maybe. But if you really want to understand a little bit more about her hymns, this is really good. And she deals with several of the themes I'm going to talk about today. So um, those, if, if you decide you want to get deeper into Ann Steele, um, there's some stuff to do. There's also a book called Trouble in Sorrow by Sharon James. It's, in this one book are four different biographies, about 50 pages each, and the chapter in there on Ann Steele is really good. So this book will kind of bog you down, um, but that In Trouble and Sorrow by Sharon James is a great introductory biography of Ann Steele. It's about 50 pages. The good thing about this book, though, the Breeze Root, Bruce Reed book is it has all of her hymns in the back of it. So that's the hard thing is it's been hard to find her hymns. Like if you go to Google book search, unless it came up like within the last couple of days, there's no edition of Ann Steele's hymns that you can download as a PDF like you can so many other cool old books. Um, but all of her hymns are in this. So they're finally reprinted where you can get at them. All right, who was Ann Steele? She was born in England in a village. She lived with her parents. Her mother died when she was three. 
Um, her dad remarried, somewhat tense relationship at times with her stepmother. Um, like I say, she lived 15 miles from the great Isaac Watts. She's part of the particular Baptists. The particular Baptists are the reformed Calvinistic Baptists, like Sojourn. Yeah. Um, you all are in that stream, whether you realize it or not. Or maybe, do they all go? To, do you all go to Sojourn? Everybody? Yeah, mostly. Or you're at least around in the, in sort of the, uh, what would you say, influence at some point of Sojourn. Yeah. Well, she's from that stream. So, uh, Reformed Baptists. Um, and she, um, she seems to have had chronic pain. There's a lot of mythology about Anne Steele, um, but it seems clear that she definitely suffered greatly, though people that knew her said she had a very pleasant disposition. You might read her hymns and think she was just always down and always deeply depressed. Uh, I think she feels the full range of emotions is my, my sense. Um, but she seems to have had malaria. She grew up near a swamp and, you know, you don't think of it now, but in the 1700s, people in England got malaria all the time. So it seems that she had malaria with the recurring fevers and all that kind of stuff. She had painful stomach problems, terrible teeth pain. She was, her health was never really very great. Um, what was unusual about her is she was sent off to a boarding school and received a very good education. Her family actually was pretty wealthy. Her father was a timber merchant, and he would buy forests and then, you know, cut down the timber and sell it to the British Navy. And he made a lot of money doing that. He also pastored the local Baptist church and never took a salary because he was independently wealthy, really, from, from his timber business. She, um, you know, grew up at this church, um, and, but yet she was sent to a boarding school, which actually the local pastor got on her mother, her stepmother, about sending these girls off to boarding school because girls weren't considered people who should be educated in those days. But her mother, her stepmother, was pretty countercultural and insisted that she get a good education. So she got a pretty good education for her day. Um, seems to have been at the center of a kind of this sort of literary circle where she had lots of friends, male and female, and they would write letters and poems. If you've ever watched any Jane Austen movies, she very much comes across like Emma or one of these kind of characters. She's very witty. She seems very, had a lot of good friends. People really loved her. She never did marry. Now, there's a story about her, which I don't think is true, about how her fiancé went bathing in a river the day before their wedding and was drowned. And a lot of people say from then on she was thoroughly depressed and only wrote these dark, you know, boating hymns. I don't think that's true. She actually received a number of wedding proposals, including one from a guy, Benjamin Bedham, who was a very famous hymn writer. He wrote like 600 hymns. Um, and she turned them all down. Her sister was in a bad marriage, and it seems that between, like, all of her marriage proposals seemed to come from pastors. She'd already lived with a pastor as her dad and felt, in some ways, it seems she felt that she could better serve the Lord being single and writing her poems and not necessarily be married and sort of be the busy pastor's wife. Again, pretty countercultural for her day, yeah? So her, her parents made this nice room with a fireplace and allowed her to be there and write her poems. Um, like I say, her last nine years of her life, though, she was bedridden. Um, you, when you read her hymns, you'll find lots of, lots of hymns about struggle. I think that's one of her supreme gifts to the church, or her gifts, or her hymns of lament and struggle. Um, but in spite of all this, she's described as cheerful and helpful 
and her life, one person that know her said she had unaffected humility, warm benevolence, sincere friendship, and genuine devotion. Caleb Evans, who published an edition of her writings and knew her personally, um, said this about her deathbed scene. He said, having been confined to her chamber, that means her bedroom, for nine years, she had long waited with Christian dignity for the hour of her departure. And when the time came, she welcomed its arrival. And though her feeble body was excruciated with pain, her mind was perfectly serene. She took a most affectionate leave of her weeping friends around her. And at length, the happy moment of her dismission arriving closed her eyes, and with these words upon her dying lips, I know that my Redeemer liveth, gently fell asleep in Jesus. Um, That's a little bit about her life. Now, her poems, it was very unusual in the 1700s for a woman to publish. She actually published under a pen name, Theodosia. Um, Maybe because it was seen as a little too forward for her to publish hymns, but the fact is her hymns were already being used by a number of Baptist churches, and she had friends, friendships and correspondence with a number of Baptist pastors who were using her hymns. Nonetheless, she first put out uh, this book of hymns. What's interesting is she could not find a publisher to publish it unless her dad came up with the money. So, you know, she was an independent artist back in the 1700s, right? And had to self-finance uh, this project, but her dad had the money, and they did. So they found a publisher because they paid to get the thing published, and um, it, it became popular. Not only that, but pretty soon after that, this guy Caleb Evans, who described her deathbed scene, he and another pastor named Ash edited a hymn book and included a number of her hymns. And so her hymns started to get into hymn books. This is when people like John Rippon and other Baptists were putting together um, the hymn collections. Really, the Baptists were the first ones to put out English hymn books that included many different writers. Like before this, there were a few, like Watts put out his collection and some other people would put out their hymns. But it was the Baptist that started pulling together hymns from all these different things and putting them out. And she um, gets used quite a lot. Um, It's hard for you to imagine how popular Anne Steele was. Her hymns um, really cross denominational lines as far as like the spread of her hymns. They get outside of the Baptist world very quickly. As a matter of fact, her hymns cross denominational lines more thoroughly and quicker than the hymns of Watts or Wesley. Um, Watts tends to be within sort of certain denominational um, family that's sort of his family. And Wesley tends to be sung by the Methodists. But I, Anne Steele gets sung by everybody. Even back in the middle of the 1800s, there's an Episcopal church in Boston that publishes a hymnal, and like a third of the hymns are Anne Steele hymns. Now, today, like most people have never heard of Anne Steele. Believe me, when I first started talking about Anne Steele and, you know, here's this hymn, Dear Refuge, My Weary Soul, nobody knew who this lady was. Nobody. In our Presbyterian hymnal that we use in the the PCA, which is the denomination I'm part of, there's, I think there might be one Anne Steele hymn, and it's a hymn about the Word of God because there just aren't very many good hymns about the Word of God. Like, it prob- there probably wouldn't be any Anne Steele hymns in there if she hadn't written one on the Word of God that they're hanging on to because they don't have any other ones. But all of her hymns that I love so much have really, had really dropped out of use completely. So I'm excited that here we have a little seminar about Anne Steele and people are interested in Anne Steele. She, um, you know, she puts out these books. She edits them herself. So I'm going to show you in a minute why that's important, because it's important to see what hymn she put first and what hymn she put last in her collection, because there's 
significance to that arranging. She did it herself. Um, but, you know, like I say, her hymns were so popular. There's a guy, Henry Burridge, who wrote a book in 1888, Baptist Hymn Writers and Their Hymns. And he says this, her hymns written to lighten her own burdens give beautiful expression to the sweetness of her Christian character and the depth of her Christian experience. Um, you know, she, she's just, it's really fascinating. I don't know exactly why her hymns dropped out of use. Um, Josh Carmichael, maybe some of you guys know Josh. He's been doing a PhD at the seminary, um, and he's been writing on the transmission of Ann Steele's hymns into various hymn books. So he's the guy I want to ask at some point. What, do you have any evidence of why her hymns dropped out of use? But I think there were some theological movements in the late 1800s where it became very unpopular for people to admit that they were struggling. One of those is the, the let go, let God movement. We talk about the victorious Christian life. Um, I think it's a very unhelpful movement, but it was very popular in the late 1800s to sort of say, just let go and let God, just become an empty vessel and let him flow through you. Don't try and fight or struggle anymore. That's all from the flesh. You just need to yield yourself to God and let him flow through you. There's, this is still popular, right, in America today. I don't think it's a very helpful theology. I don't think it's a biblical way of thinking about sanctification. But um, it, it really took over America in a lot of ways. And her hymns don't really fit in with that at all. Her hymns are full of struggle and fighting against sin and unbelief. Um, and I just think there's just sort of this tendency to remove songs of lament from Christian hymnals throughout the 20th century. What I'm encouraged about working with college students like I do is that there's a generation coming up that says, no, we need to sing about these things. And I think we do. Because one of my core convictions is that worship is formative, that you mold people by what they sing. Because whenever you come to worship, the songs that are being sung are giving you a picture of what the normal Christian life feels like. And if we only sing songs that are happy, clappy songs, we're lying to people about what it means to feel like a Christian. I think it's so important that we sing songs about struggle and lament. And I've been so encouraged to find the hymns of this Baptist lady who lived 300 years ago. Like, she can teach us about this. So let's dig into uh, to Anne Steele. Any, any questions about her life? Yeah? I'd love to just jump into talking about her hymns more than her life. I wondered if I can get a piece, of, like a drink. Can you give me a, get some water or something, honey? She didn't know, as far as I know, like it seems that they sung the hymns in, in some churches, but I don't, I've never read that she played the piano. That wouldn't have been unusual for somebody of her class, I guess, but I've never read anything about that. She didn't publish them with music. Yeah, I mean, in those days, like the hymn was kind of a literary form. You would publish this book, like you can see, there's no music in here at all. Yeah, hymnals with music built into the hymnal is really a late 1800s phenomenon. John Rippon, you know, so this book, you know, came out in the late 1700s. Rippon, incidentally, was a guy who pastored a church that later Charles Spurgeon pastored. So there's a kind of line from Rippon to this guy, John Gill, and then Charles Spurgeon. But uh, Rippon published a companion tune book um, that goes along with this hymnal. The hymnal you can find on eBay fairly often, Rippon's collection, and it's a, it's a good one. Um, but the tune book is exceedingly rare. The seminary doesn't have a copy of it. They have it on microfilm, because I know once I spent about three hours printing out every page. Um, <laughs> Chip Stam, bless his soul, um, sort of let me 
told the librarian to let me print out like 300 pages on their microfilm machine. <laughs> so I'm eternally grateful. So I have a copy of that thing. Um, thank you so much. But um, yeah, they, we don't know what tunes. Like we might be able to find out from looking at Rippin's tune book, and I haven't been able to get to this myself, but it's a project I want to embark on of looking at, does he suggest particular tunes to any of her hymns in his hymn book? But like I said, like joining one tune to one text is a fairly recent phenomenon. In, in these days, like you would, your church would know a handful of tunes and you would mix and match tunes and texts all the time. Um, it's not until more recently that, like even today, if you go to England and sing Amazing Grace, they sing it to a different tune than we do. We tend to, people are always asking me, what was the original tune of Dear Refuge? It's like, there wasn't really an original tune. She didn't write it with a tune, as far as we know. She published it in this book with a couple hundred other hymns, and then people would sing it, if they sang it in their church, to a hymn that fits that meter. And they might, in this church, they might know a couple of these tunes. In this church, they might have a couple different tunes. Yeah? Um, In these days, singing wasn't very good. You know, honestly. Like, they didn't sing with instruments. Um, They often couldn't keep the pitch very good. There's lots of sort of anecdotal evidence about sort of really dreadful singing, especially the Presbyterians. Presbyterians were sort of known as having this this wine. They called it the Presbyterian wine. That was sort of this nasal way of singing that Presbyterians like to sing. So, you know, it's hard to look back at the good old days of worship in, in some ways. Um, so that's as much I can tell you about that. that I, even in reading these books, like he doesn't talk much at all about do we have any evidence, any people that wrote in their diary about we sang an Steele hymn today and it was really great? And I, I haven't been able to find any of that kind of stuff yet. But it could be in some of those papers. Um, we do have this cool um, note in her father's diary. I, I skipped over this, but it's, it's cool. He, her, her family all called her Nanny, which I like because that's what my wife's grandmother, everybody calls her grandmother Nanny. But this is what her father wrote in his diary. Today, Nanny sent part of her composition to London to be printed. I entreat a gracious God who enabled and stirred her up to such a work to direct in it and bless it for the good of many. I pray God to make it useful and keep her humble. I don't know if he kept her humble, but I know that God um, made it useful. Yeah, so I just think it's kind of cool that we have her dad's um, prayer as the day they sent the thing off to be printed. All right, so what, what are we going to say about her and her hymns? Here's some things I think are awesome about Anne Steele's hymns. Now, when you hear me talk about this, it doesn't mean that every other hymn writer and every other like, modern Christian songwriter is bad because they're not like her. All right? It's hard to say, here's something really great, without you assuming that I'm saying things that aren't like this are bad. I'm not saying that, okay, by way of disclaimer. But let me just tell you some things that are great about Anne Steele's hymns. Yeah. Because I think the more you appreciate it, it the more it will help you uh, even thinking about writing it and maybe stir you up to want to dig into her hymns yourself. And I think you'll appreciate them more, you know? I don't know about, but it's like I appreciate a sport that I've tried to play. When I watch it on TV, I appreciate it a whole lot more. So that's what I want to help you do. She's the first significant female hymn writer. She's not the first. There's even some early church, you know, female hymn writers that write a hymn here or there. There's a couple other people. There was one lady that Isaac Watts actually edited some of her hymns, this lady Elizabeth Rowe. But she really is the one that breaks through and is the first significant hymn writer who achieves popularity and her hymns get used in a really wide way. She has a few other contemporaries, one of whom 
is a cool lady who I really think the world of named Ann Dutton. And um, this is cool. Mercer University Press has published the works of Ann Dutton, mostly because she's a female hymn writer and a female writer, um, because Mercer is not you know, in love with her theology by any means. I don't know if you know, it's a pretty liberal Baptist school. Um, but they've published Ann Dutton's works, and they have actually published her hymns. She wrote 61 hymns. She's a contemporary of Ann Steele. Uh, they're not very good. The hymns aren't very good. There's no wonder we don't sing them. They're just not very poetic. Um, but her letters, Ann Dutton's letters, phenomenal. She was friends with people like uh, George Whitfield, and when people would write to George Whitfield, he would write them back and tell them to start writing Ann Dutton to enlarge her correspondence. That was always Whitfield's goal. He wanted more and more Ann Dutton letters to be written because they were so rich in spiritual counsel that when people would write him, he'd write them back and he'd say, but you should also start writing Ann Dutton because we need more letters. She published 50 volumes, right? Her letters are very hard to find, but now, again, they've been reprinted. Fabulous. But her hymns aren't very good. But Ann Steele really breaks through with her hymns. Um, And it opens the door. See, what you got to understand, here's what's interesting. In these days at her church, for the most part, the women were not allowed to speak. They were still pretty much like women are not allowed to speak. They probably need their head covered at the Baptist, little, tiny, particular Baptist churches in rural, you know, farm country England. Women didn't get much of a role, okay? But they seemed to, in this point of time, there was a breaking down of uh, I don't want to say breaking down is the wrong way to say it. There was a loosening when it came to songs. I, you know, I don't like to be too ornery. I live in a denomination, too, where, you know, we don't believe that women should be teaching or preaching, you know, men. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm on the same page with, with y'all. But I just find it interesting people that make that a huge, huge issue, and yet they sing words written by women all the time in their worship. And if I want to, like, tweak people a little bit, I might point that out to them, especially if they're like, oh, it's an abomination to ever read anything a woman wrote. I would never do that. It's like, yeah, but you sing songs in worship to God that women wrote. I'm just saying, you know. Um, but it, that's an interesting thing at a time in her day and age, even at her own church, where they would never let her stand up and speak. They sang her hymns. And Francis Ridley Havergal, who comes along later, uh, even, like, writes a big, long poem about this, encouraging women who aren't allowed to be preachers to take up a ministry of song and to serve the church that way. If you have literary gifts, if you have teaching gifts, this is a way you can use them uh, in the church. I think that's really interesting. Um, we could talk about that more in the Q&A if you want. But um, Anne Steele, for sh- what's interesting is that there is this opening of the door even though women preaching, you know, is looked upon for the most part, especially in her denomination, no, you would never do that, never even think of that, and yet they sing her hymns. Um, what's interesting about her hymns, though, is she writes a little differently than people. Most of the hymn writers before her are pastors, and so they tend to write from a, you know, thus saith the Lord kind of speaking down to the people in the pew, whereas Anne Steele is writing as a person in the pew. So her hymns are not as preachy as some of Isaac Watts' hymns. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed that about Isaac Watts, but there's sometimes kind of a preachiness about them. Like for Isaac Watts, it's been said that for him, clarity of sight is the most important thing. He thought the gospel was very clear, and you should be able to see it clearly. 
And the hymns, the goal of the hymns should be to sort of elucidate it and open it up clearly. He, he writes in a lot of ways as a preacher, okay? But Ann Steele is a little different than that. She writes as a woman in the pew who believes these things but struggles, and she's not afraid to tell you that. What you see in her hymns also is an intensity of feeling and language. Um, do we have, I think we have some of these examples up there, right? We'll see. Yeah, good. Um, I've never done this with the PowerPoint, so this is like new for me. Like, it's going to be there. Eric is there. It's going to be there. Yes. Um, she all the time is using, like, again, she edited her own hymns. So the punctuation is hers. And look at some of this. She does this all the time where she'll have a little parentheses with an exclamation. Like she'll say something and then she just has to like exult about it. All the time you see this when you read through her hymns. Arraigned at Pilate's impious bar unparalleled disgrace. Like she can't even just let that thing go without commenting on it. She's like a running commentary in the parentheses on her hymns. That's awesome. See spotless innocence appear in guilt's detested place. Exclamation. I I was talking to to Mike recently about, I need to start blogging more. And I I asked a friend of mine, Matthew Smith, was like, do do you have any, is there anything I've written that you thought was a good example? And his like one sentence reply back to me is, you use exclamation points way too much. Don't use exclamation points. But Ann Steele uses exclamation points all the time. It's like there's this intensity of feeling like language and words like just can't do it. And that's actually one of the main themes in that, you know, singing the ineffable book is she really wrestles, even though she's a gifted poet and hymn writer, all over the place, she's talking about how words can't really get at what she's trying to do. And she's wrestling with that. And you kind of see that even in that. There's like, oh, like the... Even language is sort of bounding her in in a way that she just can't get it across. Even though she's, she's wonderfully gifted, the, the way she says, Pilate's impious bar. There's like this economy of language where with just a couple words, she can say something that just gets you meditating and thinking, right? Like she doesn't spell it out in like a paragraph. She can say it arraigned at Pilate's impious bar. In, in like, what is that, four, five words? Like she calls up a whole scene and she calls up an emotion. She doesn't just have you picture Jesus standing before Pilate, but she calls up sort of how wrong this is that Jesus, the innocent one, would be arraigned at Pilate's bar. Like that doesn't make any sense. He was, he was a crook and yet he's sitting in judgment. And then it's impious. She uses that adjective. See, a lot of times poor hymn writers just pile up adjectives because they don't use nouns very skillfully. She uses nouns very skillfully, and when you see the, the adjectives, they're not throwaways just to make the meter work out. They really convey meaning, that impious. How often do you sing that word? Like, I read lots and lots of hymns. That's an unusual word, but it just perfectly captures it. Like, this is, this is, this is so just wrong that this is even happening. Yeah, and, and this comes from uh, hymn number four has 39 verses. We're actually going to sing the, not sing it. We're going to look at it at the end here because there's something about reading all 39 verses that just has this cumulative effect that's cool. And that's how we're going to close. But um, there's this intensity of feeling and language. Um, here's another example. Go to, go to this next one. Um, Isaac Watts, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross, there's a, a certain serenity to that. Now, certainly it draws forth from you a sacrifice, but Watts is more like sitting in an easy chair, kind of pondering when I look at the cross. But look at how she writes it. Because she's definitely interacting with Watts. He wrote before her. She knows his work. She actually 
mentions Watts in a couple of her poems. So we know that she read Watts and knows him. Can I survey this scene of woe where mingling grief and wonder flow and yet my heart unmoved remain insensible to love or pain? Do you see how she's ramped up the emotion? I'm not saying that Watts doesn't engage the emotions. He does, certainly. But she goes another level. And, and um, yeah, th- th- there's an intensity of feeling and language in her which is just really remarkable. And to me, like, I don't know, when working with my young college students, like, they really, it's like, if you don't feel this stuff, then don't bother me with it. Like, I'm not interested in you just telling me about some cool things. I want to know that this grips you. And when we sing Anne Steele's hymns, like, she's gripped by this. And when you use these, this language and try it on by singing it, and try it on, it like fits. You're like, yes, the gospel should move you like that, right? Um, another thing about her is powerful use of oxymorons and paradoxical statements. She sticks things together that should never go together. Here's a good example, again, from the same hymn number four. "'Tis finished now aloud he cries, no more the law requires. And now, and there it is again, the parentheses, amazing sacrifice, the Lord of life expires. Life expires. It's a paradox. How does the Lord of life die? But that's, that's the paradox that's at the heart of the gospel. The Lord of life expires. And she just does that, again, five words. She's put the central paradox that's at the heart of the gospel. She puts it in five words in a way that you're like, I don't want to rush past that. I need to sit in that and think about that. Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, There's tons of other examples of that. Even some of the hymns I'm going to use for telling you about other things, you'll see that stuff gets into all of her stuff. There's also, what's interesting, she uses questions a lot. Watts does not use questions very much. He's telling you things. He wants you to be clear. She uses questions to probe more deeply than statements can. Here's a couple examples. Uh, This one from Dear Refuge. And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? Now that's, see, it's one thing to say, keep your chin up. The ear of sovereign grace won't be deaf when you complain. That would be preaching it. She raises a question that probes it. In other words, when you sing her hymns, one of the things you're learning to do is to preach the gospel to yourself. There's that place in the Psalms where where the psalmist says, why are you downcast, my soul? And it's actually a pretty important spiritual discipline to learn how to argue against your own soul, to take the scriptures and use them to argue. And she does that. She can kind of take you by the hand and say, now let's, let's think about this. Can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? I know it feels like that, but can that really be true? So she raises these questions. It's been said, well, that God never asked questions in the Bible to, to gather information or to, to learn something he doesn't know. He always asks questions to, to encourage the one being asked to ponder. So, for instance, when Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes, God knows they're there. When he says, Adam, where are you? It's not because God needs to be informed. It's because Adam needs to reflect. Where are you? Oh, I'm hiding. I'm in the bushes. What went wrong? What happened? Right? 
she does that. She raises questions that I think are so powerful. The next one, uh, what less, oh, sorry, go back to that slide, yeah. What less than thy almighty word can raise my heart from earth and dust, and it should be bid, and bid me cleave to thee, my Lord, my life, my treasure, and my trust. Like, there's not a good answer to that. Like, she could just be saying it, but she uses, turns it into a question that causes you to ask it to yourself and to think about, man, this, this false belief I have, this doubt, I really need to question. Tim Keller in his book, um, Reason for God, says, you know, I heard him say that what he's trying to do in that book is get you to raise doubts about your doubts. And, that, and that's a really important thing to do. And her hymns are full of that. Don't just think that your doubts are unassailable. Your doubts need to be questioned. And they need to be uh, wrestled with and argued with. And she does that with her hymns. Um, So that's the questions. Then um, she's also very free to use love language towards God in a way that really um, sets her apart and introduces a theme that some other poets before her and hymn writers before her weren't really ready to go there. Um, And this guy, uh, Watson, who wrote a book called The English Hymns, uh, a critical and literary historical introduction. It's an amazing book about hymns. Um, He says that this aspect of her had considerable influence on female hymn writers to come. uh, Here's a good example, this next one. I yield, like this is pretty, again, you have to try to imagine like 1700s, English Baptists, particularly Reformed Baptists. Reformed Baptists always tend to be a little more cantankerous, don't they? Um, I, I could say that because I'm from the Reformed world too. Yeah, there's just sort of certain like, are you sure we can do this? Is it okay? That sort of, you know, but he, look at this. I yield to thy dear conquering arms. I yield my captive soul. Oh, let thy all subduing charms my inmost powers control. That's pretty bold. You know, um, it's, it's pretty bold. And what's, what's interesting, especially for a single woman, to be writing that about God. Now, you know, it, I think it's really, really great. Um, I would say in some ways she understands... Oh, there's a guy, Derek Kidner, Old Testament professor, said the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. And I would say with Anne Steele... The love of God is the love that puts all other loves in their place. Like she's not denouncing all earthly pleasure, but she is saying that it finds its fulfillment in what God made us for. And so she can use that. Like people today sometimes criticize modern praise choruses because they're like, Jesus is my girlfriend kind of songs. It's like, yeah, but that's not the first time those kind of songs have been sung. Like, that's kind of, Jesus is like my boyfriend. I mean, it's more sophisticated, perhaps, but she's not afraid to use love language to God. Now, you've got to understand, in her day, like, you weren't considered very spiritual unless you regarded the Song of Solomon as a poem about Christ and the church. If you thought it was just about marital love, you were considered very unspiritual. Even Charles Spurgeon, like, you read his book on commenting and commentators, where he, he basically, it's like book reviews of every commentary, everybody that's ever commented on. Like, he doesn't like anybody that writes on the Song of Solomon if they don't think it's really an allegory for love between Christ and the church. So people in her day were used to thinking about the Song of Solomon as being God, Christ wooing his bride, the church. So she can sing this kind of stuff. We're not, we're not sure as much today. Sometimes people are a little uncomfortable, but there you have it. 
Um, and that con- con- connects to the next thing, which I guess I've already anticipated. She had a strong belief that the longing for heaven puts all other longings in their place. She's not stoic. She's not saying that if you're a Christian, things shouldn't bother you and you shouldn't have any real longings. All you should long for is heaven and nothing else should matter. That's not her at all. But there is a sense in which the longing for heaven should trump other longings and put them in their place. And then one of the things that I think is most important we finally get to, she's honest when it comes to human frailty and weakness. Dear refuge in my weary soul, I think is the great example of this. Um, and I, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a second because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that one under lament as well. But I, what I want you to understand is the first hymn in her works is this one, Almighty Power, or sorry, Almighty Author of My Frame. This is how she starts her collection of hymns with this one. In some ways, it's like usually, you know, usually like book blurbs are like trying to sell you on the book. And, and you just think of how kind of bizarre this is that the first hymn in the collection is basically saying, this is pointless, what I'm trying to do. <laughs> like, I can't do what I'm trying to do. I have a friend who's a pastor who used to tell people all the time, you can't do what you're trying to do. People didn't like that. Um, why would you buy this book from a lady who basically says, I can't really write. There's no point. Here's how she starts. Almighty author of my frame, to thee my vital powers belong. Thy praise, delightful, glorious theme, demands my heart, my life, my tongue. That's her first thing. Like, all of my power should be directed to declaring your praise. And then she says this in verse 3 of that same hymn. Thy glories, the seraphic lyre. So that means the, an- the angels playing on their lyres. Uh, on all its strings attempts in vain. So angels, even with their angelic harps, can't really accomplish praising you aright. A then how shall mortals dare aspire in thought to try the unequal strain? Like why should humans even bother? Now, look where it goes next. Great God, and this is the last verse, accept the humble praise and guide my heart and guide my tongue while to thy name I trembling raise this great, the grateful though unworthy song. <laughs> so she's very conscious of her inability to do what she longs to do, which is to use language to adequately praise God. And yet she's hopeful that God will be gracious and use it anyway. But there's no like trying to hype you on Ann Steele. Like her first hymn is, you know, I'm really not very good at this. And then the last hymn does the same kind of thing. It's basically like, okay, I've, I've written all these hymns, but I really didn't accomplish what I wanted to. I still like am, am kind of dejected about my inability to do this. But yet she takes great comfort in the fact that God is kind and condescending in his love. I think that's just remarkable. I, I don't know, like if you ever get like publisher pre-releases about books coming out, like they, they don't start this way. Can I just tell you that? They don't start, they don't be like, here's a new author who's really not very good, <laughs> but buy this book anyway. <laughs> but that's what, that's what she does, right? Um, she's very honest when it comes to human frailty and weakness. She also, and you've seen this a few times, um, even that one, almighty author of my frame, and it's your refuge in my weary soul, and all these hymns, she uses something, a device in her hymns that I think is really fascinating. She often will use a striking name for God, usually one that's not necessarily in the Bible that way. She uses these wonderfully creative names for God, and then the rest of the hymn is kind of trying to wrestle with, do I really believe what I just called you? So listen to these. These are all first lines from her, some of her hymns. 
Well, you, uh, it, maybe you have it there. My maker, my king. Do you have that whole list? Yeah. So each one of these is a different hymn. My maker and my king, thou lovely source of true delight. Biblical theme, yes, but that's not the way the Bible says it in those phrases, in that phrase. Dear refuge of my weary soul, almighty author of my frame, Lord of my life, eternal source of joys divine, great source of boundless power and grace, thou only sovereign of my heart, father of mercies in thy word, come thou desire of all thy saints, dear center of my best desires. And I could go on and on and on. She does this a lot in her hymns. And for me, I'll tell you, when I'm reading through something like Rippin's hymns, and I'm trying to find hymns that I might try to recover for the church by getting somebody to write a tune, I usually look for a striking first line. I think a great hymn has to have a striking first line that really grabs you. And then as you keep reading, it needs to be creative enough that like every time you read it, there's new depths. And yet the first time you read it, you understand what it's saying. It's very difficult to find that balance. I got to tell you. Um, It's why most great poets are not great hymn writers because they write things that are too opaque. But a great hymn has to be simple and immediately accessible. And yet you could stop at like Pilate's impious bar and you could just meditate for an hour on that, right? But you get it right away. But then every time you sing it, you think of it and there's new dimensions and new depths to it. Uh, I think she does that a lot with these names of God. And I actually think you can learn how to meditate and how to pray from that. Because one of the things I know, it's hard for me to get my students to, to really connect pre- reading the Bible with praying. And one of the things that can be really helpful is like to pray through a Bible passage and sort of interact with God in prayer while you're reading the Bible. It's an ancient practice called divine reading. But I, I think her, she, she helps us too, to even say like, my maker and my king. And then even in your prayer, like start your prayer, my maker and my king. And then God, I don't know. Do I really believe that? You're my maker. What are the implications of that? What is the good things about that? What are the things I don't like about that? Let me confess my sin for a little bit because I don't like the fact that you made me this way. And then I'll move on to my king. I'm glad I have a king. Well, am I really? I think I need to repent. Like you can just start with that phrase and pray. Like if you feel sometimes like I don't know where to start praying, all my prayers just seem to be like a laundry list of things I want God to do. You might try a good hymn book. When I was in college, I read this little article by A.W. Tozer where he said, next to the Bible, the best devotional book you can have is a good hymnal. It took me 20 years to realize, I think he's right. Like you could start with that and you could just take that one phrase and just journal on that for a while. In a lot of ways, that's what her hymns are. She'll say, for instance, like in this next one, this idea about lament, look at this next one. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise. On thee, when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. Now, I love that she has the, the freedom to say, my fainting hope. There's no, like, bravado in this. It's my fainting hope. But her direction is still towards God. You're the dear refuge of my weary soul. And then she goes on, and you're going to find as this hymn goes through it, she's struggling to believe that she really believes that. And she does this a lot. So when you sing her hymns, you actually work through an issue. And again, I think you learn how to wrestle with God and wrestle with your doubts through her hymns. So the next verse, when ho- while hope revives, though pressed with fears. So right now I have a little bit of hope, though it's not perfect. I'm still pressed with fears. You know, it's not, she's not going to be like, she's not like jumping on the bed. 
While hope revives, though pressed with fears, and I can say, my God. So Martin Luther said there's a whole world of theology in those little, those little words, those little prepositions, possessive things. And I can say, my God, beneath thy feet I spread my cares and pour my woes abroad. So here's, here's what she's saying. You're the dear refuge of my weary soul. And while I'm having a little bit of hope that's revived right now, I want to pour out my case before you. Before I sort of sink back into despondency again. So look where she goes next. Next verse. Yeah. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. That's good orthodox theology. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. She's confessing what she knows is true. But look at where she goes next. But oh, exclamation point, when gloomy doubts prevail. Do you think Christians have gloomy doubts prevail sometimes? She does. I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. So she knows what's true, but now she's being honest about where she's really at. Next verse. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. So she's at the point now where she's holding on by willpower, but she's not feeling it. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? So she's like sort of bringing out everything she knows about God and his character and using it to argue against her doubts. Next. No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find excess to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. At the end of this hymn, she's not all smiling and happy, but she's brought to a place of trust in the midst of brokenness. And let me tell you, if you ever are leading worship, you need to know that every Sunday there are people in your congregation whose lives are falling apart. And I really think it's harmful to only sing songs about how happy everything is and make those people feel like they don't belong there unless they can smile. It's very important. There are more psalms of lament than there are any other type. And yet often in the songs we sing, that balance has gotten way out of whack. So she's a voice of lament teaching us how to trust in the midst of suffering. And then she's a voice crying out for assurance. Now, like I work with a lot of students that have grown up in a church tradition where unless you can tell people the day and the hour you were saved, you're not, you really don't have a good reason to think you are saved. One of my, one of my students who grew up in a church, not here, he grew up more in a, uh, where's, where's he from? Um, not, not near Paducah. What's the place I'm looking for? Katie's. Near Katie's? You know where Katie's is? Yeah. So he grew up in a church in Katie's. He had a, a, a speaker come speak at his youth retreat one time who said this, literally said this, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. Think about that. If you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. In other words, if you don't have perfect assurance that God loves you with no doubts at all, you have no right to think of yourself as a Christian. You better give us a testimony and you better know the day and the hour when you accepted Jesus. 
and it better be a credible testimony, or you've got no right to think you're a Christian. I think that teaching is deeply unbiblical, and I think it's really spiritually harmful. And yet, how to minister to people who have doubts and help them to understand assurance of salvation. One of the most brilliant um, insights of people like Calvin and the Puritans is that you can be 100% saved and like 5% sure of it. That there's, that there's a difference between being saved and knowing you're saved. Yes, within saving faith, there is a kernel of assurance. Like Hebrew says, you know, you have to believe that God is, you know, is, is the one who rewards those who seek him. There's a sense in which if you flee to Christ, you know that he'll receive you at least in a, a little bit. But to tell, teach people that you have to be 100% sure or you're 100% lost is horrible. And yet it's very common in evangelical circles right? Especially when you do children's ministry and you work with youth to scare the crud out of them. And I was telling them, Mike, about one of my students had a youth pastor speak to him and say, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. And that, that ministering assurance to people is a very nuanced thing. And I think it's something that pastors need to become more skillful with. I think, you know, small group leaders, people need to understand how to minister somebody who has doubts you don't necessarily run to, well, you're not a Christian. You just need to accept Jesus so that you won't have doubts anymore. No, there, there, there's a lot of issues that can affect assurance. She is a voice crying out for assurance of her heavenly father. She wrestles to believe, like, how do I know? See, if you grow up in a church that's not reformed, like the crisis is, have you really accepted Jesus into your heart? And did you really, really mean it? And, and you can ponder that and wonder, did I really, really mean it? I don't know if I really, really meant it. I guess I better do it again. And I better really, 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 really mean it this time. And it becomes sort of this catch-22 that just kills your conscience. In reform settings, there's a different conscience issue, which is how do I know I truly am a Christian and I'm not just misled or deceived? And, and you could, especially if you're an introspective person, you can kind of go round and round about that. How do I know I'm not what the Puritans called a gospel hypocrite? who's somebody who goes to church, but I don't really have, you know, Jesus hasn't really changed me. Um, there's a lot more I could say about that, but she really is wrestling with that and wrestling with, yes, I know I'm a Christian, but I don't feel like a Christian right now. Meet me in that place. And I think um, singing those kinds of hymns of hers are really helpful because I think a lot of people, they don't have a category for that. They think either you're a Christian and you're totally confident or you're not a Christian. And I'm saying there's another category we need to embrace, which is you can be a Christian and be full of doubts. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith um, has a great chapter on assurance of salvation, which you can look at online that sort of spells this out a little more. Um, and then she's a voice. I know I'm running long, but let me, let me just do these last two things and then I have some questions. She's a voice longing for a transforming gaze of Christ's beauty. And maybe we should sing this one. How about we stand and sing this one? Thou lovely source, a true delight. It's one of my favorites. Oh, where are we at? Do you have this one? Thou lovely source, a true delight, Erica? There it is. Lovely source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. 
Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more, that I might love thee more. So when I put this one to music, it just felt like it needed to repeat that last line every time. So I kind of did. So unfortunately, this isn't the real version. I guess we can't sing it too easily. It'll, it might be kind of co- confusing. But listen, listen to this. Let me, let me ju- we'll just read through this one. Um, there's a sense in which, you know, you are the lovely source of true delight. There it is again, that striking name for God, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight. I have a, a friend, he's passed away now, but he used to often pray at the beginning of worship, Lord, open our eyes to see you as more beautiful and believable. I think I prayed that at one of the services this morning. It's always stuck with me that the goal of worship is to see Jesus as the beautiful one. You know, I always pray that when I do a wedding, that, you know, Lord, will you be the beautiful one in our midst that takes our breath away? Because that's what we need to see. And she gets that. This is 2 Corinthians 3, that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon Christ. This is how change happens. So she says, thy glory over creation shines, but in thy sacred word, I read in fairer, brighter lines. Why? Because I read about my bleeding, dying Lord. It's one thing to see God's beauty in creation, but there's an even more beautiful sight, which is actually in some ways the most gruesome, ugly sight, that the innocent one would be crucified. And then she goes on and she says, "'Tis here,' she means in the Bible, "'where my comforts droop and sin and sorrow rise, "'thy love with cheering beams of hope "'my fainting heart supplies.'" So the Bible is where I get my revival But ah, too soon, the pleasing scene is clouded over with pain. My gloomy fears rise dark between. She means between her and seeing Jesus. And I again complain. And then she says, Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light. Great um, sort of cascading there, the way she builds that. I come with blissful ray, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. You're the only one that can do it. The Bible needs you to, to open my eyes to see the beauty that's there. Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love, but the full glories of thy face are only known above. I love that. I, I, we use that hymn a lot before the sermon. Like, you know, what's a good hymn of preparation for the word to be preached? There it is. Um, man, I, I think we're out of time. I don't know if we have time to read 39 verses. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down. I'm going to open it up for some questions and then I'm going to uh, commend you to when you have like 15, 20 minutes to read that, that hymn from beginning to end. Because it's remarkable how she, in this 39 verses, sort of picks out every little aspect. I know I have this old uh, Moravian hymn book. The Moravians, you know, I don't, I'm going to explain about who the Moravians are. But they, in their liturgy, they have this, um, this sort of litany of praising God for all these things that you don't normally think of praising God for. Like one of them is like, we praise you, God, that on the eighth day you were circumcised. You're like, really? Uh, Like, I can think of lots of things to praise God for, but that just didn't like on my list, you know, but praise you that you had nowhere to lay your head and you know what it's like to be homeless. It's like all these things that sometimes you overlook because we just think of the big things that we know Jesus did. But there's something about 39 verses. Like, when was the last time your heart was really gripped with how scandalously wrong it was for Jesus to be, to stand before Pilate and have to answer for himself? Like, when did that ever just make you angry? But it should, right? So anyway, that, I think that, that, that hymn just does that in a really 
remarkable way. And sort of, it, there's a cumulative effect of doing all 39 verses that I want you to have. All right, let me, let me stop there and have some, some time for questions or thoughts or... Yes. Well, there, there's lots. I mean, even something as cheesy as Cyber Hymnal, you know, um, it has the worst MIDI patch of like, you know, with the piano. But you can hear tunes there. You can at least hear how tunes go. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, there's so many tunes. Like, are you trying to find, you know, what are some old tunes that might have been used with her hymns? Yeah. The, um, I mean, Rippin, I think, would be a good thing to explore. What? Yeah, do they have tunes that you can hear, though? Yeah. Yeah, if somebody can play it, if you're a piano player and you can read music, I'm a guitar player, so it's hard for me to, like, get that four-part thing. Hymnary, H-Y-M-N-A-R-Y dot org, is a great website. Um, the thing about Hymnary, though, is if Ann Steele's hymn appears in there with only four verses, it's, in Hymnary, they're only going to have the verses the way they appeared in hymnals. But over at Cyber Hymnal, if there's extra verses that are cut out of hymnals, but were in the original, you know, collected poems, like they'll have all the verses at Cyber Hymnal. But I just recommend turning off your speakers before you go to Cyber Hymnal, because there's no way to stop it. Like it starts playing automatically when you click on a hymn and it's horrible. And if there's one way to make you hate hymns, it's like leave your speakers on at the Cyber Hymnal and listen to us. So there are some ways. Like you can go over to the, to the seminary because you live here and you can, um, you know, look in the microfilm at that thing. You'd have to find also the addition of Rippon so that you can know which number um, goes with which. There are some places in his hymn book where he'll list a suggested tune. And there's a lot of people like there's PhDs that write their theses on those sorts of things like you know, which tune was used with which, and even tracing different tunes that were used with different hymns. But I, again, I don't think you're going to get at what was the tune that they used the first time Ann Steele introduced this hymn uh, in this congregation. It's, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to access that. But Rippon's not far from her, um, both time-wise and also he's in the same denomination. And so maybe there's reason to think that if this tune had become associated with him, her hymn 30 years after it was published, you know, maybe that association goes back earlier. I don't know. Also, another thing is sacred harp singing. There are some Anne Steele hymns in the original sacred harp, and so you can look at some of those tunes. I'll give you a plug, like the 102nd or 103rd um, United Sacred Harp singing is coming to Nashville uh, this fall, so that's not too far to drive down. If you've never been at a huge sacred harp singing, I know you have the big sing in Benton, Kentucky. Y'all ever been over there? Yeah, you really should do sacred harp singing sometime. Mike, you need to get Dr. Crookshank to come in here and talk about sacred harp singing sometimes because she loves that stuff. And it's, it's my new love because um, in a weekend you'll sing 200 hymns by Watts and Wesley and Ann Steele and Joseph Hart and all these people. They only usually sing a verse or two of each of them. And without instruments, sing at the top of their lungs as loud as they can with no attempt to blend. And it's awesome. So anyway. So there are, uh, there are other tune books, too. I, I find, like, the tune books are really expensive, but I'll just give you my little tip. You can go to eBay, and you can look under the antiquarian book section, and you can find old hymnals all the time. But generally, up, up until the, after the Civil War, the tune books are separate from the hymn book with the words because most people didn't need the music. They just needed the words, and they would bring their own hymnals to church and then take it home. 
It was kind of cool the way in those days your hymnal was a constant companion. Which I think is one thing you've lost going to church where it's PowerPoint is you don't necessarily take that home with you and use it for family devotions and have it as your companion, especially in a day when you probably didn't have very many books at all at home. The hymnal was much more of a treasured possession. And that's why when you find these old hymnals, they're usually, you know, worn out with love and being carried around. Um, But you can sometimes find, you know, some companion tune books. They tend to be very expensive. So I'm just warning you. Yeah. But now with Google Book Search, you probably can find a lot more too. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, well, I think that there's a number of things to be, you know, cognizant of when you're thinking about that. Um, I tend to like to keep, like, the thous and these and stuff, but other people don't, and that's okay. My, my argument is that I want my students to know that the church is bigger than people that talk like them, and so it can be helpful for them not everything to be adapted to their language. On the other hand, sometimes the words are unnecessarily awkward and vague. Like I saw in Give Reviving, you changed one of the words. Yeah. Fortes, yeah, which is the same meaning. You know, earnest, you know, but like if you've ever bought a house, you've put down earnest money. But if most people in your congregation have never bought a house, that earnest, what is an earnest? It's sort of a deposit. There's, a, there's an aspect of, there's a connotation of deposit guaranteeing what's coming that's in earnest that's not in fortes necessarily. But I'm, yeah, but nobody knows what it means. So like either you, got, you stop and explain it or you put a little footnote at the bottom of your hymn slide. It's hard to know what to do. So those are always judgment cases, yeah? Like what I try to do is, you know, ex- I, I want to explain one thing about one hymn in a service. And then hopefully if you're around for a couple of years, I'm going to get to most of those weird words. But sometimes there's too many of them. You just got to, you got to change it. So it's always a judgment call. You need to do it because you've got a good reason to do it. Um, I, one thing I'll suggest too, like it's fine to mix and match verses from this and that. Like this love, oh love incomprehensible. Like I took some of these 39 verses and some of you, if you know Indelible Grace music, you may recognize, oh wait, I've heard those like four or five verses I took them out of that hymn called Redeeming Love, and I stuck it with another verse, two verses, from Augustus Toplady. He's the guy that wrote Rock of Ages. So you can be creative and try things like that. You can even, there are even, you know, people that sometimes will take two lines and combine it with two lines from somebody else or two lines from another hymn. Like, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing is an example of that. The original has like five verses. We generally sing it with, what, three verses. And one of those verses is made of the first two lines and the last two lines from some of the original verses. So editors, hymn book editors, do that kind of stuff. You're free to try to do that. Sometimes there's one verse that really seems to work as a chorus because it sort of like seems to be the idea that encompasses the whole, and it's good to come back to it. Sometimes, or sometimes the way the verses develop, when you come back to that idea, it has new levels of meaning, right? And, and so you kind of, like a good pop song does that often, right? Like the chorus means one thing after verse one, but after verse two and verse three, there's a little more revealed to the story. And now you realize the chorus had something more or even something different than you originally experienced, right? You can do that, you know, with hymns too. So, uh, or sometimes you just can compose like sort of a chorus that seems to go with it. Like when I did Arise, My Soul Arise, it's not Ann Steele, it's Charles Wesley. But, you know, I sort of made up that chorus based on like one of the lines, 
because it seemed like there needed to be musically kind of a come back home feeling, and then we can go back to the verse. So I, I think, you know, let your creativity run wild. There's always sort of this tension between fit and freedom in art. There's a sense in which you, wanna, you don't want to just do what's always been done, or then it's cliche. But if you push so far that you break the form, you know, then, then that's not good either. And, and there's a place of creativity that sounds fresh, but still sounds familiar. And I think when you're talking about congregational song, you have to be even a little more on the familiar, a little more than, than maybe like a cool artistic singer-songwriter song, because people need to be able to sing it and give their amen to it. I mean, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians about people need to be able to say amen to what we do in the worship service, so they need to understand it. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's lots of things you can do, and you might have to change a word here or there, you know. If there's words that are hard to understand, I encourage you to look them up in the King James. It finally dawned on me that, like, I had some students write a paper for this hymn class I was teaching, and part of what they had to do was explain any weird, awkward words, and they were just Googling the words and coming up with these crazy interpretations. And I was like, no, that's, that's a word that's in the King James, and Anne Steele took it from the King James. And if you would have looked it up in the King James, you would know what this is talking about. Because it's not this thing that you Googled. That, like, because that was crazy. Um, so that, that's a tip, too. So if you find something that's weird, the more you read, you know, 18th century and 17th century Puritans, the more the words make sense. But you can't expect that everybody's doing that, you know? Like, I know what earnest means because it shows up a lot in, in Puritans um, and in these older evangelical guys from the 18th century. But, Yeah. Which is sort of a way to say, you'll be a better songwriter if you read and help have a context for some of this stuff. But you still may not be able to explain it to the people singing it, so you may have to change it. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure. Here's the thing, like, for me, like, the thing that she contributes that not many, many other people contribute are the songs about suffering. So when I look at, like, what are the songs we're singing in my, you know, group, my RUF group, like, we need some songs about suffering, and there's not a lot of other good places to go. So that's why I tend to mine first some of the Ann Steele songs about suffering, because that's where there was a big gap in the kinds of songs we had available. Like, I was at this church where we just never sang hymns much. And if we sang hymns, they were definitely not hymns about suffering. And so I was, like, dying to make our worship more full-ranged and more honest and true to the normal Christian life, which has ups and downs. I had lots of songs about up. I didn't have any about down. And then I found Ann Steele, and I found there's doubts. But she definitely has lots of songs about joy. Um, So I commend her writing to you. And people that knew her said she wasn't this dour, you know, frowning face woman all the time. There were definitely periods where she was miserable and, and very ill and not feeling good at all. And there were definitely periods when that spilled over into her wondering if God really loved her, which I think happens a lot. Yeah. Um, but there are also times when she really delights in God, especially nature. She writes lots of poems. Not only does she have hymns, but she has a bunch of miscellaneous poems as well. Um, and, and so, and they are a lot of them about 
lots of different things. But she writes hymns about earthquakes and about famines and about like all kinds of things, coronations, you know, there's a whole range, like hundreds of hymns. So there's a lot to, to read through. And I think if you just start it, what I tell people, I just read through them and I just mark the ones that grab me. And what I often, I should tell you this too, like for, with the hymn, like Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, here's what I tell people. For me, like most people are, gonna, are going to only ever sing the hymn. They're not going to play it. So if the guitar part is really cool, like that's not really the way most people are going to experience that song. So I can tell the songs that I wrote that started as a cool guitar riff, and then I tried to fit a melody to the guitar riff. They tend to not be very interesting melodies, really. But like um, Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul, like the way I did that one, I basically would, like, first I was grabbed by it. Oh my gosh. Then I said, okay, I'm just going to read it out loud. Read it out loud. Try to find the natural stresses, you know, where the accents dear refuge of my weary soul. And it felt like you just needed to pause on thee when sorrows rise. And it's like you can just hear the weariness in her. Like it wouldn't make sense to go, dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise. Like I try to emotionally connect to it and then just try to go from speaking it out loud with like the right sense of pacing to trying to just sing a melody that seems to go, dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee winds. Like, you just, there needs to be a breath there, because you don't rush through those lines. So, like, it turns out that musically, it's four, 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 and then two, four. If I was playing the guitar, I would have done a rhythm, and it never would have had a two, four bar in the middle, because it throws off the rhythm. But when I sang it, because I'd talked it, out a bunch, it just seemed like that's what made sense. And I just, I'm still convinced that the most, the more interesting melodies that I've written are ones that I talked it out first and then did the melody with no instrument. So I generally will read through a book like this. I'll find a text that I really love and I'll turn on my little voice recorder and I'll just try singing things. And like, you know, sometimes I'll go back to it and be like, that was kind of cool. I want to work on that. Maybe even figure out some chords that fit with that. Okay, maybe now I'll dig out the guitar. But um, I, I just think that most people are only ever going to sing it. And so if you are just start with a melody, I think often it'll be more interesting for people to sing. And it probably will fit, and you won't have the accent on the wrong syllable, right? Yeah. But I don't know. People's methods are different. And sometimes it's good even to change your method, you know, because you get stuck and in a rut or something sometimes. But often people will send me tunes, and they'll be like, hey, what do you think of this? And so often, I have to tell you, I'll say, you started with a guitar riff, or you started with, like, four chords that you really liked, and then you tried to squeeze these words in. Because these, these are a lot of words, you know? These, these are a lot of words, and a lot of them are rich words that you don't sing quickly. And so if you're trying to just strum along and squeeze them in, often it feels like that. I don't know. That's my two cents about that. Any other thoughts, questions? No, I've kept you here long enough, huh? All right, listen, let me just tell you this. You, one thing I, I'll, I'll encourage you if you're a songwriter, you have to write a lot of bad songs to write a good one. And I think one of the great barriers to artistic pursuits in the church is all the dang perfectionism. We don't want to do anything unless it's great. Well, you know, what things do you do that you come out of the gate, you know, 
strong and fully, you know, arrive. Not very many. So, you know, don't be afraid. Like, if you heard, like, gosh, for our Wake Thy Slumbering Children album, I think I listened to a hundred songs. Most of them were mine. Like, and what, maybe three got on the record? Because I let some other people listen to them and give me their feedback, you know? And that's okay. I still have them in a playlist in my iTunes, and I go back to them time to time, see maybe I can still work with this. Some of them I've had for 10 years, and I still can't seem to know where to go with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, and we'll try them out and worship, and a song that I thought was going to work, nah, it just didn't really work. And almost every record, I go into it saying, we are not going to put a song on this record unless we've tested it out in worship. I always violate that principle for one song that I'm sure is so great that it does need to be tested, and almost always that song never gets used by anybody. There's no substitute for actually trying it out. And especially for finding a community and a place, and maybe you guys have that. If you don't, you should. A place where you can get together and share the songs that you're working on and get people to give you feedback and encouragement. Um, I, th- I think that's really great. And the church can be that kind of kind of place where we can just say, hey, I'm working on this. You know, what do you think? And, you know, you got to be humble and you got to be gentle, <laughs> you know. But you also got to know that, you know, most of what you write is not going to be good. Do you understand? Most hymn writers are known for one hymn. I mean, there's a few like Ann Steele, Watts, Wesley. There's not very many hymn writers that you could tell me two hymns that they wrote. Very, very few. I'll bet not even Cosper. Like somebody that knows hymns. Like how many Joseph Hart hymns do you know? Well, you guys probably wrote one. Have you ever written a Joseph Hart hymn? Come ye sinners. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's an amazing hymn, Come Ye Sinners. And there's a huge statue of him in this cemetery where he's buried. Like it's as big as the statue for Isaac Watts. But how many of his hymns do you know? Like, and most tune writers are known for one tune. So, you know, be sobered, but be encouraged. You may write a tune that's useful for a long time, that really helps, but it may not be the tune that gets used beyond your generation. That's okay. But you might write a tune that'll sort of enter into the church's sort of repertoire and be useful and awesome. And you would count yourself very blessed if you have one thing that you write that gets used by somebody, you know? So I'm kind of like, you know, I don't really get that offended when I see, like, somebody's rewritten a tune that I already put a tune to. It's like, it's fine. Like, a lot of these are works in progress and maybe temporarily useful. And, um, you know, I'm not going to defend every song we've ever put on a Double Grace record. I will defend the attempt and the project of encouraging people to put new tunes to old hymns, especially old hymns that nobody sings anymore that need to be resurrected. So be free. Be at it. I mean, you got a great resource here with sort of an encouraging community that is wanting to nurture young songwriters. And I, what I have found a little bit, like I've seen this with Sandra McCracken. So she starts out, you know, doing these old hymns to new music, writes some herself. But now her last worship record, she wrote half the words. Yeah. But her writing now for the church is much better, I think, than it would have been if she'd never went through the hymns and sort of was disciplined and discipled by them. So even if you don't want to write hymns, knowing how the hymns work and why they do what they do will really help you not only how to be a better friend and a better pastor, um, how to better to teach people, but it'll, it'll help you in so many different ways. Because so. this hymnody is some of the best articulated Christian experience that we have. You know, often, like, you just read the theology books, but here you actually get 
like what a person in the pew really thought about and wrestled with 300 years ago. And you find it's the same thing I wrestle with. Maybe Christianity isn't just sort of a faddish thing of me and my friends. Maybe it has roots that are deeper and cross cultures and different things like that. I think all that stuff's helpful. So, I don't know. We probably talked long enough, eh? Yeah, good. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, um, I, I love this prayer by, by um, Ann Steele's dad, and I, I, I want to sort of take it as our own prayer, Lord, that her hymns would continue to be found useful, that this project and this work that Sojourn is about of wanting to um, resurrect some more Ann Steele hymns, we pray, Lord, that it would bless your church, that it would bless those involved in the writing and the reading and the wrestling. Um, we just pray, Lord, that your blessing would come through Anne's words yet again for the good of your church and the glory of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.